Hi, everybody. We're going to be talking with a very private woman today. Her name is Jen Sullivan, and we're going to be taking a little bit deeper look into our human story. She is the one who works in companionship with Sarah Braskman, who brought us the book, A Hypnotist's Guide to Atlantis. Her newest book is called A Hypnotist's Guide to the Secrets of the Sphinx. And Jen is her primary subject, who is a very, very clear, easy subject to work with in hypnotism really profound clarity. And today we're going to be talking about her experience coming to earth initially, but also about uh, the hybridization program that occurred early on with humanity and some of the people here. And also um, about how the earth is progressing at this point, what our future looks like a little bit from her regression sessions. So let's go to Jen. First of all, Jen, thank you for showing up. <laughs> Most people don't know that you have not been showing up because you, there's good reason for it. We're going to get into it in just a sec. And it's and I think a lot of people, particularly a lot of women, are going to relate to this. And that is lifetimes in which we have suffered at the hands of others for being non-conventional and sharing information that's either out of the box or ahead of its time. And this happened to you in your last lifetime that was very recently. In fact, you only took a five-year break between your last death and, and then incarnating as Jen Sullivan. So Jen, if you don't mind going into your previous lifetime as Christy, a young woman who was really very different from the people around her and her understandings and what she was bringing through and what happened to her. It's actually a very tragic story. You go into it in more detail in this book and it really just shakes you to the core to see how people who are considered mentally ill are treated. So take it away from here, Jen, and welcome. Thank you so much, Regina. It's a pleasure to sit and talk to you again. Definitely an interesting subject, but it's been one of the harder things that I've had to kind of confront when I've gone and done past life regression hypnosis is actually my most recent past life. I find it kind of funny that it was one of the first things I wanted to know when I began the sessions with Sarah many years ago. And it's only up until recently that I've actually fully understood it and understood everything that it plays into my current lifetime that I'm living through right now. So. Well, let's talk about it because you knew a lot back then and you were being regressed by a woman named Julia in that lifetime. Let's talk about why that was and what you uncovered in that lifetime that really feeds into this conversation. Yes, definitely. Uh, as a younger person, I experienced a very traumatic household with an abusive stepfather and a mother who was very willing to allow him to continue his behavior. So I sought refuge pretty much anywhere I could and ended up moving in with a man that I thought a young, well, it was a boy, really, he became my boyfriend, but I moved in with him and his mother. And through that connection, I met a friend of his mother's one night and her name was Julie. And she had just come back from out West. I believe it was out in San Francisco somewhere. She had spent many years trying to just figure something out. And when we met, she was very interested in talking to me and, and understanding more about me. And I couldn't understand why. And we began doing these sessions, these kind of hypnosis sessions where she would use a candle and I would look into the flame. And I began to understand my past lives in Atlantis and Lemuria through that. And this was back in the 1970s. 
So this was something that was a little bit ahead of its time in some ways, and in other ways it was kind of budding out in the 70s like that, but I was very young in that lifetime when this happened. I was in my early 20s, late teens, I believe, and uh, when I tried to make the information known to a news network that I was working for, I was incarcerated into a mental institution. So it really put me into a place where I had been worked very hard to get out of this cycle of abuse and ended up just being labeled crazy by people and pushed away. I think it's so hard for people to understand that in such recent times, people were still using terms like female hysteria and it seems like your presence, you were a very attractive young woman and you were speaking about things other people didn't understand. It, it, it was like you had a, an X on your forehead or something. And you ended up being incarcerated. What you and Sarah have pieced together appears to be Bellevue um, Mental Hospital, right? In, in New York City. And <clears throat> the way you were treated at that time, there, there are no words for. It's a very difficult part of the book to read. And you reported it, I think, very clearly. And thank you for that in great, great detail. So others who haven't been in that situation can understand from the inside, because most people don't make it out to communicate after they go through this. So you ended up having shock treatment and ultimately a lobotomy in that lifetime. And please explain what happened after well, a little bit about the shock treatment in that place you went to on the electricity. And then what happened when you went into the, uh, when after you had the lobotomy, which is quite a different experience. Yes, very much. After, well, the electric shock treatment therapy that they gave me there, I believe it was at Bellevue. I'm not 100% sure, mm -hmm. but it fits the, the area for what I believe it was. Uh, they were using this to try to stop me from, just reset me is what they, I remember them telling me that I had just received too much hysteria, my hormones were crazy, that I needed to just stop talking about this crazy nonsense with Atlantis and I needed to get set straight again. And they continuously would shock me and shock me and shock me. And it got to a point where it kind of crossed some kind of threshold that I believe allowed her to tap into what was going on in Kala, with Kala in Atlantis when she was being held prisoner there with the torture and, the, and the, the same kind of torture that they were doing to her just on a, in a different way on a different level. And it allowed her to connect back into it. And it allowed her to go back into these places and understand these memories on her own. And instead of sitting there and feeling that terror and that pain, she was able to escape and to see that lifetime. And it almost in a way comfort that cap comfort Kala while she was in her prison. And if that makes sense, if that's how it, you know, that, that's well, if, time's if time's not linear, it makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Reach out to each other within yeah. that shock, within that electricity pulsing through them. Then what happened once the lobotomy occurred? The lobotomy was pretty much end game. I realized after that had happened that my memories had been erased from my current lifetime. I couldn't really remember my, my mother. I couldn't remember Julie. I couldn't remember anything except for my lifetime as Kala. And I knew that I was trapped, ultimately trapped. I couldn't communicate. I couldn't even look upwards and look into someone's eyes. I lost the ability to speak. I just slurred my speech and had drool running down my mouth. 
And I was able to leave, I believe it was during possibly like a fire drill or something to that effect. I'm still trying to understand how I got out of there, but I left and went to the nearest bridge and was able to kind of hurl myself over and end that lifetime, which is also kind of a, a reason this book, I'm writing a book about this experience as I did for the last one. And it's been really hard to write about that just because I don't want to promote the idea of ending your life because of something in this. <laughs> I understand that, but that's what happened in that time. And uh, thank you for being um, honest enough to share it and allow it to be shared. And so let's talk about then now, once you were able after the lobotomy to continue going deeper and deeper into what you once were deep, deep, deep past, because there wasn't anything else but the deep past. I want to now go back to the original story, which we talked about a little bit before you initially came to earth as part of a project because you were coming from a place that was dying and you were coming for a specific, specific function and project in terms of hybridizing. Let's talk about it because it's something people are generally scared of, but the way you report it, it's just so plain. It's so obvious and practical coming from the point of view of someone from somewhere else. So tell us who you were and what that, project was about and why you were here. Yes. One of the lifetimes I recounted was that of the commander who was on this mission. He had been trained his entire life to come to earth and to begin this colonization effort. We had sprinkled seeds is what I understood through my session earlier on many generations before the commander came to earth. And we had I believe in in many ways you have your your many evolutionary theories and this one would kind of fall into place of, it, it just naturally evolved over time. We sprinkled human seeds here and let it kind of evolve and then came back thousands and thousands and thousands of years later to kind of update, to upgrade, to allow them to kind of see their full potential and to give them technology to keep them moving forwards. And within all of that, we have so many errors that were made by the colonizations as colonizations tend to happen. and. I think it's really interesting to see that they didn't really account for how the humans would adapt to so much that they would be willing to change about them, such as like earth children. They were not prepared for the unruliness of earth children, the curiosity. They were more or less these scientists that came here to first colonize. They were used to what they had on their planet, on their dying planet, which was this evolved version of us in many ways that just was kind of boring in many aspects. And you talk about this and you say what was happening is they were seeking, a, constantly seeking a kind of perfection, societal and personal perfection. But what they had done is actually bred out most of what we would call the uh, kind of wilder, interesting stuff like emotions, and the way children were, were bred and raised had become quite different. They had gone beyond physical breeding between the males and females. Uh, something was more controlled, uh, where features could be controlled and so forth. So it was a more emotionally managed society, it sounds like. But you said the planet was also dying. Let's talk about that part of it planet was and what I recalled in the sessions was that there had been an ongoing resource is issue on the planet with the red crystals that they had mined from a nearby planet and 
throughout the course of many, many generations, I couldn't even give you an exact amount of years, they had just depleted this resource using a type of slave labor from another kind of alien force is what we began to understand. It just kind of sucked the life out of them not having that to use anymore, to not have that kind of resource around them. And it kind of led them on this journey of becoming beyond themselves, of going beyond their own realm and going out further, finding more of this in the universe to kind of utilize and create with. Okay, so now um, you're here, uh, you crash landed. Uh, you were the only one that survived. And for a long time, you felt guilty about it, but learned through subsequent regressions that actually it was built in, it was baked in. It was actually allowed through your technology for you and several others who came here to end up being stranded here, so to speak, and, and continue the experiment that way. I would like to find out when you first encountered humans when you came here and um, also human children, what were they like? What did they look like? What did you look like? And what did the hybridization program look like? What were the offspring like that were produced between your species and the human species of the area you came to? Excellent question. Well, I do recall myself having a very, uh, very much almost like a lack of color. It was almost as if it was color had been removed from us, or we had evolved over time to, to come this kind of, what's the best way to put it? Just, just bland, very bland. We had just kind of melted all together in so many ways. And the hair was very silver. I remember that it was like this opaque kind of silver that caught many different prismatic dimensional you know, light sources when it would move around. But other than that, there was just very little color to people. Was it kind of albino, like an albino? Almost. And I remember there was something specifically with the skin as well that it could not absorb certain UV light, certain types of blue light, I believe. It was it was very detrimental to the skin. And that was one of the needs to kind of work on for us if we were to come over and to live on this planet, we weren't going to be able to stay long. But our future generations, if we interbreeded and we colonized, they would adapt to it naturally over time and they would not have this issue with the sun. So let's talk about who, well, we know that you ended up mating in that lifetime and there was one successful birth and then subsequent births after that. What did the children, what did the people you mated with look like and what, what did your offspring look like and what did that evolve into over time? I believe they had very varied looks. There were ones who were with large, uh, lighter skin, ones with darker eyes, darker hair, just all varied features. It just felt like there was a little bit of all types of variation that were around. The child though, that I believe came from my union with a woman that was one of the uh, humans there, her name was Evie. Uh, her, that child was a very interesting mix of the two. The mother Evie was much darker. She had a beautiful reddish brown colored skin and large curly black hair that came out and just big brown eyes and the child kind of in, incorporated both of our looks having a bit of that silver streak going through her hair as well as her mother's beauty as well. So what was coming from elsewhere here as a colonizer, which of course freaks everybody out until you start really looking at our human history and how many, many of us 
may have participated that in that our, ourselves one way or the other. Um, what were you, what were you hoping to gain? Was it to take the hybrid species back to your planet or to bring more of your people to earth and begin incorporating your DNA into earth and living in earth life? The latter, definitely. It was more of a, we have to leave this planet. We know it's not going to sustain us any longer. The mission long-term was to get everyone that we could off the planet there and integrate it into a new society, a newer, or a new planet, a new, a new start. So what did you feel you were giving to the earth people? You were getting their vitality, your ability to survive in this environment. What did your people feel they were giving to the earth people? Was it an exchange or was it simply kind of just a colonization to help yourselves? Was it a two-way street in your mind? I think it's whoever's looking at it is going to give you a different answer there. The colonizers are going to tell you one thing and the colonies are going to have a very different viewpoint. I think they their their main effort was coming in peace coming to help revolutionize to bring new technology to innovate whether they wanted those innovations or not was not asked to the people it was thrust upon them so was it fair probably not in any sense shape or form but it was part of a larger plan that was created before so it just kept going and going and going and going yeah. Okay, so let's talk. Let's take the story to Antarctica, because that's really for you where this story kind of takes some form. Uh, as you said, there were ley lines that had already been put into place. Uh, let's talk about Antarctica itself, the people there, the offspring there, also um, the tunneling underneath and so forth. Let's just tell us what you saw about Antarctica. Yes. When I was questioned about Antarctica, I saw, and every single time it would bring me to the same place. It was a green field that was very windy and a big, beautiful blue sky above us. And all around, you can see these kind of um, uh, dome-shaped buildings that were covered in like a silver and white and these little children that just ran in circles, constantly running in circles. And the further I went into this vision, the more I began to understand that they were part of an experiment. They were part of this original grouping of hybrid children. They had done it in an isolated place and this was the original place that they were going to begin getting them out and, and understanding it. And it kind of all went awry. It didn't really work out too well in Antarctica, but- How so? It, it really, it ended up being a bit of a failed mission. The children, some of them were sent out to different colonies. Some of them were sent out to different places once they began getting older and understanding how to use these powers. But the children were very powerful themselves. They have this ability to run in these circles and generate this kind of energy that was utilizing these crystals in a way that they just could not understand truly the the scientists who were there working on this mission it was all a new it was something they weren't planning on finding was how these children worked with the crystals and worked to create these newfound uh, it is just an energy but it's more than an energy it's a way to tap into everything 
I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. Well, Antarctica, of course, is, is much more um, in the front of people's minds today as we're waking up as a species and beginning to remember a lot of our background that's been hidden from us for thousands, even hundreds of thousands of years. So what was Antarctica at the time in terms of its place on the planet and technologically? And also, let's talk about those tunnels a little bit, because each place you went, you saw this massive tunnel structure. Definitely. I kept seeing this repetitive tunnel structure underneath the ground that connected all into these different chambers, these different areas. It, it all was basically just holding this information, almost if you want to envision the way we have, um, I believe in, a Nor in some Nordic countries, we have banks that are holding seeds in case the end of the world happens. It's very similar to what those underground tunnels up in Antarctica are, are functioning as now. They are holding things that I believe will help link us back to this early beginning that we've forgotten about and help us understand a bit better our ultimate role here on this planet, why we're here, what we're doing, why we all just want to blow each other up constantly and, you know, just how we can kind of move past this and become those bland, emotionless blobs that need to evacuate their planet again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's hope not. <laughs> I would like think we can learn to transform and work with our emotions a little better than keep blowing each other up. But yeah, dream on for the time being. We're, we'll get there. Uh, we have some interesting things to talk about at the end about that. So do you believe or is it your understanding, as it is with many people are questioning this right now, that the further we start digging into, so to speak, both psychically and physically, Antarctica, that we're going to find ancient technology that came from other planets? Do you believe that to be true? Oh, I believe we're going to find so many things that we have just not really been able to access either because of weather patterns creating an inability for us to access them or whether or not governments of countries have purposely closed things up so that we can't understand them and it's a means of control over the people. There's a million different reasons for us to not know these things. It keeps us moving. It keeps us working. <laughs> so, okay. So let me just add, this is kind of a little bit of a non sequitur before we go back into that story. You now, uh, as Jen, how much, since you have started digging into your past through regression, do you still relate to that being that originally came here? Is that still prominent within your feeling body and understanding of what life is? Or are you now incorporated into, like most of us that have been here a long time, more of the human experience? And that's just a reflection back. How much of that is still you in your mind? That original person who came here. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Not very much, to be honest. That's something that I really was unaware of until I began to tap into it using hypnosis. And I can kind of conveniently put most of my lives back on the shelf and put them in their box and say, we're good. As long as it wasn't something that I've specifically, I feel, maneuvered this lifetime to deal with. Yeah. So lifetime didn't really have much of a play on my my plans for this lifetime I can easily put it back away back up on the shelf I have trouble with other lifetimes though so it's not always the same for each one 
Absolutely. And I, I understand that. Um, okay. So among the planning of these people that you once were one of, and there are many, many others, so, so many others uh, that were seeding here, that were attempting colonization in various regions of earth. I mean, this was not uncommon uh, on this planet. Um, there is usually a longer term game plan. And as you were saying in the regression, that there have been backups. And I found this quite interesting um, that there is a backup earth, a new earth that has been created and is being seeded. I want to ask you about if it's being, or if people are already beginning to incarnate there, who and why, and also about the subject of a new earth that's actually part of our earth that is going through her own dimensional shift and development. So let's talk about the planning for other earth scenarios. Definitely. I feel like that goes back uh, to the earlier colonization days from when they were trying to leave the home planet. I don't think Earth was the only place that they threw a couple of seeds. Like, I, I definitely don't. I, I have this very deep feeling when we go into our sessions that we're not the only ones out there. We, we are the most isolated. We are the most remote. And that's why they're having some of the most unique results that come from our planet because of the way we've had no interaction from other planets. We don't know about this identity. We can't even begin to like gauge it because we don't have that contact yet or haven't recognized it within our society yet. So I think for the- Let's talk about the earth that's not this one that has already been created because that's the story that I'm well familiar with myself from my own soul group and guides. So let's talk about how you were shown that and what that other earth is like and who's there or who is or isn't incarnating there at this time. It's an interesting thing. I had no idea that this was something until way after my sessions when I found out that this is something for people that they other people understand about it. But what I've seen in many of my sessions and as well as what I've realized have been dreams throughout my lifetime is that there is some type of a dimensional place that we can go through or have been going through or can go through that leads us to some kind of dimensional mirror of earth that we have been working on and creating and recreating in an image that is not as harmful as the one we've created here. Kind of leaving behind fear, leaving behind jealousy, leaving behind all of the things that have kind of left us in this predicament and allowing people who are no longer necessary to this this karma here on this planet to go forward into this new kind of dimensional pull and experience that as a difference in their next lifetimes as they go forward. So what about the new earth as it, as it pertains to this earth, the earth we're on right now? Because you also make a distinguishing, there's a, there's, you distinguish between that new earth and this new earth. In other words, an evolved new earth with a more evolved people on it. I, here's the thing. I don't know if there are more evolved people on it yet, to be honest, going into this new earth. I'm not 100% sure. But from what I do understand is that there are hybrids of us that have already been created that are there guiding people, that are introducing people to this new place, that are showing them that all the possibilities that there are for them as an individual soul or an individual energy rather than 
you know, they, they've had to shed this lifetime that they had here that allowed them to transfer over. And I think for a lot of people, it's a different kind of lifetime. It's something where they had to finally complete and move on. And I think you're seeing a lot of that, especially with the pandemic, with all of these world changes we have going on, these weather changes we have going on. I think it's a bit of a larger reason for people to have this way to exit out. And do you feel that many of them are incarnating to the other place? I do. I do. I feel that they are. When mm -hmm. I when I see them in my sessions, it seems like a very unique and innocent place. I have to say that when when I've looked at it, um, meditated on it, first was the notion simply because my guides were talking about the fact that another earth had been formed over a very, very long period of time, knowing this period of time was coming where the needs of the human beings and the psyche of the human being would be so um, divergent that it would be very difficult for everyone to live together in the same place because of the levels of consciousness. And so that there would be this natural vibrational kind of coming home or going home, uh, depending on whichever place you went to that matched your field, your vibrational field. Um, the one thing that they also were explaining to me is that this earth that we're on now, who's going through her own dimensional shifts upward, which is simply vibrational, would ultimately in its next phase become the a kind of kinder and gentler version of what we have now. I think that's something that you saw almost the exact same words. Yes, very much so. It feels very kind, almost like you're coming home to to mom after a long day of school and she's made you cookies and <laughs> kind of warm, welcomed, appreciated, and it's your rightful place to be kind of feeling that this is where we we're ultimately heading all the time. And you also saw that there, we have multiple timelines. There are always multiple timelines available to us in trajectories. And what you expressed and was captured in this book. And in fact, I think a fellow named Fred, who she regressed toward the end of the book, captured a very similar thing. He too has not read about any of this, is that in these timelines, there was a point where it was not clear whether the earth was going to hit a point of more or less devastation of itself um, due to us, the human beings and our actions on the planet, but that that has somehow been averted. Well, I think a lot of people have a lot of different, um, perce not perceptions, but people get different information in their sessions based on where they are in their personal reality and what is going to affect them and what's going to be around them. I, I feel a little up in the air about that one because I feel like for a lot of people, it, it isn't going to work out that way, but for some it will. And it's kind of a weird balance to strike between the two when it's such a deeper kind of understanding for the other. So Sorry, I think I kind of. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying because you said that in the book too. Okay, this is kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, if you're looking at it through my lens, which is if you look at it really simply and kind of foundationally or fundamentally, you know, as a fundamentalist looking at this, 
it could be that as a species, we are splitting and we are going to be dividing up into these various earth scenarios to continue the lessons we're learning based on our level of consciousness. And from what I was getting out of that, and I may be wrong because I might be conflating it with what I've been seeing, is that this earth we're in now, we actually are moving towards something that is more conscious as more people wake up. And the ones who are waking up, if it's true, it's all vibration, and we can stay vibrationally with the earth as she continues to elevate her own frequencies, it would, by virtue of that, be a kinder, gentler place, and everyone goes where they need to go to continue their lessons and experiences. How does that play with you? I think it's an ideal scenario. I would love to <laughs> that, but I feel that for many of us, we will see that if not in this incarnation, perhaps in the next one as we move forward. I, I feel for some of us though, we still have many things to learn and many things to experience on this planet while it's still here, while it is still doing its thing. And I can't accurately say in this lifetime for everyone, they're going to see that because I think there's still many, many big things that we're throwing oh, over that we're that we are trying to accomplish before we hit that point. And it's going to take a lot, you know, it, it really is not something that will easily just happen while we sit back and wait and watch. It's something that needs to be very proactive. And Oh, I agree. And, and over a period of time, this is not a quick thing over a period of more incarnations. I think it's important to, to, um, put out there and recognize that depending on what you're here to do, what you're here for, that will determine the kind of uh, commitment that there is to a given earth. If you're here working and you're here learning, then there's every reason to stay around and see this earth through to a more refined state of consciousness. Very much so. You know? Yes, there, there, there's the reason there for it. And there are so many, and I feel that are programmed to do that, that that is why they've come here. That is the mission that they've chosen for this lifetime. And it is something so deeply instilled in them that they've felt it their entire lives and they know what their path is, or they need to realize what their path is. But I think one of the most important things I've become familiar with within this whole process is that if you want change, it's not going to happen in the most pleasant of ways. Change requires and necessitates you to be uncomfortable enough to change. And if you want to see that change, you have to start getting uncomfortable in certain ways. And looking at your life and seeing what is not real, what is a societal lie, what has been programmed into you by our society growing up, within all of these different types of systems we have and really overthrowing what is pushing us down. And it's the only way to get to that point. Well, one of the th stories that is going is our earth is dying and we're killing it. And um, this is upon us. And so we need to enact legislation that seems to benefit more wealthy areas of the world and nations and not yeah. so much benefit the others. Uh, that that kind of thinking has been has created a lot of really unnecessary fear. Yes, we should not be adding pollutants to our beautiful host. However, these are stories that are creating a, another level. We get through one area of fear and then another is promulgated. And so the notion that our planet is dying, when you looked at this, you said what you said, what came out in the book is 
one day, maybe millions of years from now, it's not imminent. So let's talk about that for a moment. Definitely. I have come into contact with many other people since publishing the, uh, our first books with Sarah that have come to me saying, it is imminent, prepare now. There's no point in writing other books. There's no point in doing anything else. Just get ready because the earth has had enough and we're kind of ready to just start offloading. And I didn't feel that way. And mm -hmm. in every session I went into, I said, no, because I know for a fact that my energy is here till the end. And I know I still have wing. <laughs> I know this I is left in you. <laughs> Me too. Right. Like I, I have this feeling I'm shutting the lights off at the end when, when it's all done. So it's just not something that I, I understand on my own recognition as the end. It's funny though, here in Hawaii, we have a very active volatile, Kano that's not too far from me, uh, Kilauea. And when I go there and I see this massive gap in the, the ocean, not in the ocean, in, in the earth that's sitting there and it's this molten lava, you can feel the energy coming out of the earth. And when I feel that energy coming out of the earth, I don't feel that she's dying. I feel that she is letting off her steam. She is letting off this aggression. She's angry, but she is not dying. And it's up to us to stop making her angry at this point. That's what I say. That was the beauty of COVID when everything went still for a moment. We just stopped kicking her and everything immediately starts healing and replenishing itself. We just have to stop kicking her. <laughs> so here we are. We're a an odd, an odd kind of species, hybrid species ourselves. Um, I have another overlay to that as well. And we're drawing intrigue from all quarters throughout the cosmos. What is your understanding looking at humanity right now as to why others are so intrigued with what's happened with this hybridization experiment, so to speak? I think a lot of them deep down relate to it. I think majority of people put on a mask every day and walk around and try to fit in as best as they can so nobody can see past any of their their questions and their concerns and their curiosities about themselves. But up until recently, we weren't allowed to think about ourselves as individuals. We weren't allowed to think about what kind of an ancient past we could have had. We were told to fit into specific blocks. And that's where we had to live. That's how we were going to become successful and be something within our society. And now it's not as necessary. People are looking at it differently and being able to digest this information that maybe we are a bit of a hybrid species. Maybe we're not just humans, like whatever that's supposed to mean. Look at how different we all look. Look at how different we all act and how differently we have digestive needs and, and everything about us is so different. Why wouldn't we be a combination of more than just one thing that evolved? Oh, well, I couldn't agree more with that. And you and I, one of the things in this book that came up and we're going, you and I are going to have another conversation because I have so much, there are so many different subjects to go into. I really wanted to kind of encapsulate this one with your understanding and experience of having arrived on earth, what the programs were about, how the other star people who came here are perceiving their experiments, so to speak. Uh, looking back on it. And, and, but I want to bring up one thing that really brought us together. And you and I were talking before the, we started taping this or recording this. And that is an experience of the destruction of Atlantis, which happened in three phases, which most people aren't aware of. Most people are only aware of the part that Plato 
uh, passed on and became well-known in society into Greek and Roman times, Egyptian times. But there were two others prior to that, the top parts of Atlantis starting to, um, the destruction started at the top going down to ultimately the most Southern part that we all know about. And that is the middle destruction of Atlantis. And I bring this up because the earth does do what she has to do. Um, she does shake it off. She does have her own stretching and developing and blowing off steam. So let's talk about the first, second, and third destructions of Atlantis and where you and I really connected, uh, which we learned off camera. Definitely. Well, actually, I've recalled in some of my sessions some really interesting things about Atlantis's past. And I have been fascinated with finding out a bit more about just truly like beyond the beginning. I, I understood the beginning with Atlas being transformed there, but there, there was actually a community that was already set up, one of the earliest civilizations that was set up on Atlantis after Antarctica. And that was predating this past lifetime we spoke about in A Hypnotist Journey to Atlantis and, and Child of the Universe. It predates all of that. And it really shows that there was a massive power struggle that went on in Atlantis, something that continuously would affect it. I, I believe that whole rock formation, that whole area was just embedded with some kind of energy that made people just kind of super competitive and very, you know, how Manhattan is built on schist rock and it just makes us kind of crazy when we go to Manhattan and you want to move a million miles an hour and get everything done. It was the same kind of thing. And it made Atlantis's beginning, I think, set the precedent for its ultimate end and that it was always going to be a power struggle. I think it was always doomed to end as it did. And so the first, when you saw the first destruction, what was that based on? Because that was a little different than I had understood before, the very first one, hundreds of thousands of years ago. The first one that I recalled was a struggle, I believe it was between, I have to think back a little bit. It was within the people there that had landed there and that their colonization efforts had just gone nowhere. And that two of the crew members, I believe, turned on everyone and kind of ended the experiment and put everything into another, into a cave and kind of closed it all up. But there's a couple of different Atlantis scenarios. So I'm sorry if I'm not getting well, that's okay. The one and the, let's just go right to the second one where um, I found out you had read in Dolores Cannon's book and didn't know that was my experience. I'm reading this book, uh, The Secret, Secrets of the Sphinx, right? And I'm thinking, oh my God, Jen saw the same thing I saw. And you called it an energetic cataclysm that happened in the second destruction of Atlantis. And talk about that for a little bit and how you experienced and what you saw, because I was, I was regressed by Dolores and I was there when that happened. And it was quite awful and very traumatizing to anyone who was still there who chose to stay there. So what did you see? It's been a while since I've thought about that one. I, I honestly remember, I think this is the one where I remember seeing the pyramids that they had all around Atlantis. It was the smaller pyramids that generated electricity. Mm -hmm. And I remember that there was a battle going on between the people and the government as well. And this was feeding in because there had already been uh, human animal hybrids that had been created earlier on and they were struggling for their freedom. They were looking to be more than these creations that just 
provided services and provided, you know, that, that kind of you know, slave labor, who would want to do right. that? And it, it ultimately started spiraling out of control from those two factions, like with, with outside the government and within the government needing that control over the people. And it just led to this energetic mishap when the, uh, the red crystals became, <laughs> became a big thing for everyone. It's funny. I get a lot of questions about the energy out of Atlantis and a, a lot of the stuff with the red crystals and everybody wants to know where they are. Do you want everyone to know where they are? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> After that, do you want anyone to know where they are? No, I think it's best. We don't have access to them right now. I don't think we're quite mature enough. And that, that time when everything became destabilized, the earth itself was going through its own process. And the destabilization, we started working with, we, and where I was, we worked with our minds, where others were, they worked with the crystals and the pyramids and the technology. Everybody was working in their own way. And my misunderstanding in that regression was I thought that they were power tripping, so to speak, that they were trying to use their, their technology muscle. What I can tell you, I found out later from my guides is that they were, they were trying to subdue the energy in the only way they knew how through their technology, but it wasn't, it wasn't really intentional that it would go this far. If you, the earth itself is trying to um, exert herself and there was much to be lost at Atlantis going down all players involved including ETs were trying to stabilize it so we wouldn't lose everything and what you said really struck me when you were reporting on it and that is that we were going to lose everything and it would take a very long time to rebuild and the way I said it to Dolores was we're going to go to sleep now for a very long time because of all that we lost and it's going to take so long to rebuild. Very, very similar perceptions there. Anything you want to add to that? No, but I definitely just got goosebumps all up and down my arms when you said that. <laughs> it was, it was definitely, this is a moment of reset. We've done too much. We've overtaxed the system. We need to shut it down for a while in order to regroup and figure out how to do this differently again. And one thing you stated throughout these regressions is that it seems that various societies, when they reach a particular state of technological advancement, um, that usually is denotes the beginning of the end because something organic has been lost. And we're going to end on that note with what you've seen there. And then we're going to pick it up with what you saw on Mars, about Mars, people who are longing to know more about Mars is because they may have been part of that experiment and the Sphinx. We're going to do that in our next conversation very soon, but let's just end on that one note that what happens when too much technology overtakes organic life? There is always going to be a battle for the control of what we see before us. And if we are going forwards in a way that technology is going to be necessary, then technology is going to become a part of it with us. And we begin to abandon the biology of it as we go forward in that manner. It, it's just a natural progression. Think about the car you drove 30 years ago versus the car you drove now. I don't think you'd want to drive that, would you? But 30 years ago, it was, it was unbelievable. We need to abandon certain things in order to move forward. And it's always part of this scenario of constant evolution and, and just 
reaching out beyond whatever our original home was, we've probably come so far from that at this point. It's necessary we keep going. I agree with you on that, Jen. Jen, would tell me uh, the name of the original book and the new book you're working on right now so people can begin looking for it. Yes, definitely. The original book I wrote was called uh, Child of the Universe, and that was the companion to Sarah's A Hypnotist Journey to Atlantis. In that, I basically detail in, in more or less just my perspective what that lifetime was like living as Kala in Lemuria and then being taken prisoner and brought to Atlantis. And it focuses just on that lifetime of mine. Uh, in Sarah's book, they'll talk a bit more about the other clients who had similar experiences. In this book that I've been working on now, it'll do the same as it did for the first book to Sarah's as it will for the second book to Sarah's. Uh, I'm calling it The Gift of the Stars. And it's ultimately about understanding that lifetime relating to it, and then ultimately being prosecuted, incarcerated, being labeled crazy as a result of coming into knowledge of what our original origins could have been. So it's it's a different story, but it also is a continuation of where we left off. It will go further into what we left behind, like what other aspects of Atlantis, Antarctica, but it also tells Christy's story, which needs to be told. I feel like she stays with me a lot and I need to get that story out the way I did for Kala. Yeah. Once it's out, it doesn't bother you anymore. But if you keep it in, it bothers you. It eats away at you. You need to let some things out. Well, you started what you're doing now then, and you're just continuing her, the journey you had as Christy in this lifetime as Jen, it's, I think it's very important you continue. And as I've said before, and I told Sarah this when I first met her, and that is, I think it's going to take all of us coming together and remembering to piece together our deep history. It's not going to happen just through bones and artifacts. That's not sufficient. Our real history is buried so deeply under the ocean and under the sands. It's going to take deep memory in order to piece it all together. And I very much appreciate what you contribute to that. So, and in that fact, very soon I'll be meeting with Sarah again, and she's going to, apparently Dolores Cannon is still behind the scenes engineering things. And she's told Sarah that I'm supposed to be regressed by her, by Sarah. So I'm going to do it too. We'll all contribute in the way we can and see what we bring forward. Cause it's always a surprise. <laughs> Jen, thank you so much. And again, I look forward to our next conversation. It's already lined out here. We're going to talk about Mars, colonization of Mars, people here who were part of that. We're also going to be talking more deeply about the Sphinx and what you saw. Okay. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you so much, Regina. Again, if you want to connect deeper with Jen's work, you can go to JLF Sullivan, classic spelling, JLFSullivan.com. You can also look into the work of Sarah Breskman and her books, A Hypnotist Guide to Atlantis and A Hypnotist Guide to the Secrets of the Sphinx. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com.